Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Earning your degree online doesn't mean you have to go about it alone. At Capella University, we're here to support you when you're ready. From enrollment counselors who get to know you and your goals, to academic coaches who can help you form a plan to stay on track. We care about your success and are dedicated to helping you pursue your goals. Going back to school is a big step, but having support at every step of your academic journey can make a big difference. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of psychological abuse and brainwashing that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. -year 35-year-old Kip McKean stood in front of a congregation of hundreds on a cool day in Boston. His rising, passionate voice was full of conviction. His journey had brought him here. He was at the World Missions Seminar in August 1989. His disciples had gathered from all over the world into the Boston Garden. They were in the palm of his hand. His goal, to galvanize their faith and get them mobile to evangelize the world. Sweat beating on his forehead, he gripped both sides of the lectern and bellowed. Churches, church leaders, never consider the possibility of failure, never consider the possibility of fruitlessness. Persecution is not an excuse. However, the persecution his members faced came mainly from Kip McKean. He demanded everything from them, their money, their time, their souls, but it was never enough. Eventually, he asked so much of them, one member reportedly said, if it's this hard to go to heaven, then I'll go to hell. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a ParCast original. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Cults for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Cults in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. 
Today, we're taking a deep dive into Kip McKean and his involvement with the International Churches of Christ. We'll explore Kip's upbringing and beliefs that helped mold the church into one of the fastest growing religious organizations in the United States and one of the most controversial. Next week, we'll look closer at the members of the church and some of the crushing effects the church's policies had on them. Finally, we'll see why Kip and the church eventually parted ways. Kip McKean started the International Churches of Christ as a small congregation in Boston. A charismatic preacher, he grew his fellowship to a global organization in less than a decade. The church was built on strict adherence to the Bible, believing that everything written in the scripture was meant to be taken literally. However, while this mindset brought comfort to some followers, it opened the door for leaders to exert an abusive amount of control over others. So controlling, the church was accused of brainwashing by many former members. Once in the congregation, new members were forced to give themselves completely over to the will of their assigned elders. Life choices, like decisions on who to date or what career path to follow, were not made without first consulting elders. If a member went against their advice, they were told they were going to hell. At its height in the late 1990s, under the guidance of Kit McKean, the International Churches of Christ had over 130,000 members in over 100 different countries. However, by 2002, McKean's empire had crumbled around him. Under mounting pressure from the media and other leaders inside the church, he was ousted. To better understand Kip, we have to look at the beginning of his journey. Thomas Wayne McKean II, known as Kip to those close to him, was born on May 31, 1954, in Indianapolis, Indiana. His father, Thomas Sr., was a dentist and a naval officer. He was serving overseas when his son was born. It would be six long months before they first met. Not much is known about Kip's mother, Marilyn, but Kip described her as very outgoing and warm. With Kip's father overseas, his mother took over the majority of the responsibilities in raising Kip and his two younger siblings. With three of them in the household, it was hard to manage, but all three of the McKean siblings grew up on stories of family glory. The family was allegedly related to Thomas McKean, a famous revolutionary figure who signed the Declaration of Independence and was president of the Continental Congress. Kip often said his family was propelled higher by his ancestors' courage. This was apparent in his father's military service, where he ascended the ranks to become a rear admiral. His father's career in the Navy had a large influence on young Kip. It required that they constantly move, meaning Kip never had a permanent home. Despite this, he admired his father's leadership and position of power. He also grew up idolizing larger-than-life figures, such as John F. Kennedy and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Kip believed his heroes paid the ultimate price for their dreams. He appreciated their refusal to compromise their morals, but it's possible that he identified with these figures too much, seeing himself as infallible and inflating his own importance. 
Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. His intense adoration of these larger-than-life figures could be interpreted as early signs of narcissism and potential delusions of grandeur. According to the Cleveland Clinic, someone with grandiose delusions has an overinflated sense of worth, power, knowledge, or identity. The person might believe he or she has a great talent or has made an important discovery. This would eventually manifest itself in the form of Kip's zealot-like adherence to Christian belief. Though Kip wasn't serious about his faith in his youth, midway through high school in the late 1960s, he joined a Methodist youth group in Maitland, Florida. At that time, the Methodist church was known for its strong focus on evangelism, a trait that Kip never forgot. While we don't know exactly when he picked up the ideology, Kip eventually became a biblical literalist. This is someone who believes that every word in the Bible is meant to be taken 100% literally. As opposed to the Catholic interpretation of the Bible, which is that the book is a combination of literal history and divinely inspired allegory. Blake Victor Kent, a postdoctoral research fellow at Harvard University, and Dr. Christopher M. Piper, a senior lecturer of sociology at Baylor University, found that those who interpret the Bible as literal fact feel that they are closer to God because they view God as a tangible being. They hypothesized that an intimate God is knowable while a universal force is not, and a literal view of the Bible reinforces God as knowable, while a skeptical view does not. This doesn't mean that one must have a literal view of the Bible to be close to God. The study also found that if one sees God as a tangible being, they're more likely to feel that they have a personal relationship with the divine. While having a close relationship with God does not inherently lead to narcissism, this spiritual intimacy paired with growing up hearing stories of family greatness may have led Kip to believe he was destined to be someone important. These feelings only increased during his time with the Methodist youth group. The tall and wiry teenage Kip described his first youth group as a warm, welcoming environment where he felt like he was part of a fellowship. However, just before the beginning of his senior year in 1970, Kip's family once again moved, this time to Chicago. It was there that Kip first saw a distinction between himself and the secular world, a world full of chaos and sin, at odds with a heavenly one that had a clear structure. Kip longed for the Christian community he had once known. So in the fall of 1971, 17-year-old Kip moved back to Florida by himself. He enrolled at the University of Florida and majored in communications. He even followed in his father's footsteps by joining the Sigma Chi fraternity. In addition to brotherhood, he also found fellowship. During his freshman year, he was invited to a small Bible study by one of his fraternity brothers. When Kip accepted the invitation, he had no idea that it would change his life. The devotional was sponsored by the 14th Street Church of Christ, later known as Crossroads. And it was led by a charismatic man named Chuck Lucas. 
He had neatly combed black hair, wore three-piece suits, and was often seen sporting a mustache. 32-year-old Lucas was eager to spread the word of God. He delivered loud, impassioned evangelical sermons to anyone who would listen. Lucas believed heavily in campus outreach. He was adamant about recruiting young college students and implemented discipleship. Lucas likely borrowed this idea from evangelist Robert Coleman and his book, The Master Plan of Evangelism. The book was a strategy guide based on the life of Jesus. It taught that recruitment should start on a small scale with a one-on-one connection. Just as Jesus was a mentor and a teacher to his 12 disciples, Lucas would do the same for his new young members of the ministry. That night, late in his freshman year, 18-year-old Kip walked into the devotional, entering Lucas's orbit. He felt the same passion and camaraderie he had once felt in his high school youth group. And so, he became one of Lucas's disciples. The use of discipleship at Crossroads was new to the Churches of Christ. New members were given a partner, usually an established member of the church. They would then be asked to reveal their sins and shortcomings. This was supposed to help the new member confront their failures and to help them avoid temptation again. This behavior, if pushed to its limit, resembles that of what are generally considered to be cult-like groups, such as the Unification Church and the Church of Scientology. An elder is given power over a new member because they know their darkest secrets. Although we don't know definitively if Kip was paired with Lucas, many former Crossroads members have stated that they had a very close mentoring relationship. It was during his early time with Lucas that Kip began showing an interest in ministry. Only a few short weeks after joining Crossroads, Kip was baptized. In the early morning hours of April 11, 1972, he made a commitment to God. He carried his new faith back with him to Chicago when he came home for the summer. There, Kip started attending a local Church of Christ. But also during this time, his upper body broke out in horrible boils. They extended up to his face and stopped just at his hairline. Kip believed that God was testing him, humbling him with the outbreak. The boils eventually left scars all along the sides of his face. It only made him more devoted. Against his doctor's orders, a still-recovering Kip returned to the University of Florida in the fall of 1972. More importantly, he returned to Crossroads. Later in his sophomore year, Kip was once again tested. His younger brother, Randy, was diagnosed with cancer. While others may have found this to be a trying time in their lives, Kip flourished. To him, this was another message from God, teaching him a lesson about the fragility of life. Kip became even more inspired to go out and save souls because, unlike the body, they were forever. What began as a vague notion to work in ministry grew into a full-on calling after Randy's illness. Kip wanted to devote his entire life to God and become a minister. And soon after, he found his calling. He met the person he would share his journey with. In 1973, during his junior year, 19-year-old Kip met Elena Garcia Bengochea at Crossroads. Her family fled from Cuba in the late 1950s, 
Determined to have her share of the American dream, Elena was an honor roll student at the University of Florida. He had found his spiritual equal. They became almost inseparable. Also during this time, Kip continued his mentorship with Chuck Lucas at Crossroads. Lucas took on mythic status in Kip's mind with his seemingly unwavering faith and influence. According to Robert Hatch, a former Crossroads member, Kip was eager to please Lucas. During his remaining time at the University of Florida, Kip became a near carbon copy of him. He not only mimicked his style of dress, wearing three-piece suits and gold pocket watches, but adopted his cadence and mannerisms as well. After 21-year-old Kip graduated from the University of Florida in 1976, he took a job as a campus minister at Northeastern Christian College in Philadelphia. Eager to change lives and save souls, just like Lucas, Kip jumped at the opportunity. However, shortly after he arrived, he became disillusioned by how the so-called Christians lived. He saw drinking, drug use, and overall immorality. However, the most troubling thing he saw was the lukewarmness that they had toward their faith. Kip may have developed what psychotherapist Dr. Alfred Adler called a superiority complex. It's defined as an unrealistically exaggerated belief in one's own merits. Kip saw himself as better than those who did not adhere to his high level of faith, regardless of the true morality of his own behavior. He only wanted to be associated with those who were completely committed to the mission, the true believers. Even though they were already saved, Kip thought the students at Northeastern needed to meet a much higher biblical standard. McKean said, I came to a deep conviction that being religious is not the same as being righteous. In 1975, disappointed after seeing the lives of so-called Christians in Philadelphia, Kip hoped to find solace by enrolling in a seminary. However, much like before, the experience did not live up to the high expectations he had formed at Crossroads. Leaders at the seminary told him that he needed to be broader with his faith. They said there were other written works besides the Bible that he could glean spiritual information from. Kip was incensed. The Bible was the only word of God, and it was meant to be interpreted literally. Anything other than that was a betrayal of Christianity. Kip's reaction was extreme. It is common for those in seminary to study the works of other Christian theologians. They may be asked to study the writings of Martin Luther or St. Thomas Aquinas in order to gain a deeper understanding of their faith. After what he describes as 10 traumatic months, seminary came to an end and Kip was asked to be an on-campus minister at Eastern Illinois University by a sister church. It was on this campus that Kip truly came into his own. He took Chuck Lucas's teachings and ran with them, taking his first steps toward building a global Christian empire. Up next, Kip comes into conflict with the church. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a, it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Now, back to the story. In 1976, 22-year-old Kip McKean was invited to join the Heritage Chapel Church of Christ in Charleston, Illinois. They wanted him to initiate a campus ministry at Eastern Illinois University, similar to the Crossroads Group. After his bad seminary experience, where he clashed with leaders over his literal interpretation of the Bible, Kip was looking for a place to make a true difference, a place where he could save young souls, a place he believed he had found in Charleston. Perhaps to cement his roots in the new city, Kip committed further to Elena. They were married on December 11, 1976. Kip also made a few breakthroughs to help him reach and save as many people as possible. He came to believe that the only way to train as a minister was through the method he practiced with Chuck Lucas, discipleship. To be a disciple in Kip's eyes, you needed to be totally committed to God. Without this crucial step, you could not be saved. All other Christians who did not live their lives committed to God went to hell. Kip set rigorous standards for his young congregation, putting them under immense pressure. Many former attendees reported that to be considered a good disciple, and therefore a good Christian, they had to spend countless hours recruiting new members and spend even more time being mentored. In Kip's view, discipleship was of paramount importance. Hell awaited all who weren't saved, and so his congregation had to save as many as possible. As he had done at Crossroads, Kip needed his new members to be open with their discipleship partners about their shortcomings. When they were paired with a more senior member of the congregation, they were asked to write down what former members of the church called a sin list. The new disciple would have to list their shortcomings in excruciating detail during a three-hour session. These sins were used to encourage them to be better people. The idea was if the partner knew your sins, they could help you to not succumb to them again. However, it was impossible to reach the high standards set by Kip. Many former members said the pressure they felt was immense and their sins were held over their heads as a threat. Starting in 1976, Kip began to speak to congregations all over the country, spreading his strict version of the Christian message. Over time, he refined his message and style of delivery. Kip was loud, fast, and full of energy. He chastised congregations for not being true enough to the Word of God. His confidence in his faith and his knowledge of the Word was magnetizing. Kip was also winning over a younger audience. 
some of his beliefs were surprisingly progressive. Kip, a child of the 60s, believed in letting women lead prayer when men were present, which was not allowed in most churches of Christ. His wife Elena was very active in the women's ministry. Kip also focused on racial diversity. He believed that if a congregation wasn't reflecting the outside community, it wasn't doing its job. By 1977, he had helped to grow the ministry in Charleston from only a handful of members into a congregation of roughly 300. This was an unequivocal success, the result the church had been hoping for. However, there were problems on both sides of the arrangement. While Kip saw how effective his discipleship practices were, he also saw the limitations of the college ministry. He was concerned by the lack of devotion to evangelism in the main church full of elders. Without that, the church wouldn't be able to grow as he believed it should, and he wanted to save as many people as possible. Kip said, I gradually came to a deep conviction that no matter how dynamic campus work was, unless a whole church is totally committed, the campus ministry's impact would be limited. Around this time, church elders in a sister church in Houston voiced concerns over some of the things that Kip was preaching. On a basic level, Kip's teachings were not in line with those of the mainline churches of Christ. He taught that one had to become a disciple before they could be baptized and saved. And to Kip, being a disciple meant you were completely committed to the cause and God. If you were saved before you made a commitment, what reason did you have to work for the church? This was a direct inverse of what the mainline church believed. They, like most Christian churches, taught that once you were baptized, you became saved. Psychiatrist and cult expert Robert J. Lifton believes that leaders of cult groups rewrite existing doctrine based on their own deep convictions. He said, having experienced the impact of what they consider to be an ultimate truth, they consider it their duty to create an environment containing no more and no less than this truth. And the congregation was receptive to these radical teachings. He gained power because it was his interpretation of the Bible that they followed, not what other churches of Christ taught. He was closest with God. And this put him in direct conflict with the rest of the organization. Elder Delbert Burkhart from the Memorial Church of Christ in Houston reportedly said, We believe that Brother McKean has brought unbiblical practice, peculiar language, and subtle, deceitful doctrines to Charleston from the Crossroads Church at Gainesville, Florida. At the heart of the matter was the discipleship partners. The other church leaders argued that faith under duress wasn't true faith. They wanted to see growth, but not at the cost of what they believed in. Burkhardt also said, confession of intimate sins, peer pressure to conform to human judgmental standards, and intimidation. We believed this to be artificially supported Christianity. The elders also had a problem with the amount of time the members were forced to set aside for recruiting. They felt that the members were being unduly pressured to live up to Kip's high expectations of perfect discipleship. However, the most damning of all the problems that the elders listed was staking too much on one method, one church, Crossroads, and one man, Chuck Lucas. 
Brother McKean appears to be wholly absorbed in following all three. This was a direct attack against Kip's mentor, the person who Kip had tried to emulate. Therefore, it was an attack on everything he believed in. It spelled the beginning of the end for Kip's relationship with the mainline Churches of Christ. He later wrote about his former church, the spiritual condition of most of the Churches of Christ ranged from lukewarm to disgusting. He also criticized the average size of a Church of Christ congregation. Their membership was declining, his was growing. To Kip, a shrinking church was a church full of sin and was cursed by members who were not sacrificing enough. The sister church in Houston spoke with 23-year-old Kip in April of 1977 in an attempt to reconcile. They said if he could just get back to the basics and give up the discipleship practices he had learned from Lucas, then their relationship could remain intact. Kip was a huge draw and helped turn the struggling church around. The church wanted to continue supporting him. However, instead of taking the criticism and falling back in line, Kip doubled down. He charged ahead with his discipleship practices and extreme recruiting mandates. On April 24, 1977, the sister church pulled their funding. The Memorial Church of Christ in Houston wrote a letter to the congregation about Kip's loss of support, saying, their motives may well have been good, but these doctrines and practices were not. We asked Kip to change this by breaking away from this teaching and its source. They would not agree to do this. The elders here must account to God for your souls. Therefore, we had no choice but to terminate the support. Kip denied that he was kicked out. Instead, he claims that he simply left for a different church with committed members. But by the end of 1979, after a local newspaper accused him of coercive recruiting practices and putting pressure on members to tithe, Kip was completely shut out of preaching in Charleston. He soon found himself in a new church in Boston, where his beliefs blossomed into something even more dangerous. With no larger church council to censure him, he was now free to take complete control of his congregation. Next, Kip continues to flirt with the boundary between being a religious zealot and a cult leader. When I found out I was going to be a parent, I immediately felt a lot of anxiety and worry. So I went on to BetterHelp to try to look for a therapist to help me with that. My relationship with my family and with my boyfriend and with myself were suffering. I really needed help. I was ruminating a lot. Really getting those thoughts out to a therapist and getting feedback was just life-changing. If you're thinking of trying therapy, learn more at BetterHelp. That's BetterHelp.com. This episode is brought to you by The Weather Channel. The key to solving any mystery? Smart decisions based on the facts. In the case of the weather's effect on your well-being, turn to The Weather Channel app. It clues you in on how weather shapes your mood, health, and productivity with insights built on reliable forecast data to help you thrive. Because mystery belongs in true crime, not weather. Be a force of nature with the Weather Channel app. Now back to the story. 
1979, after he was shut out of Charleston, Illinois, 25-year-old Kit McKean moved his radical teachings to Boston, Massachusetts. There, he continued his quest to evangelize the world, taking inspiration from the book of Matthew. Quote, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. By late 1979, Kip set his sights on a small Church of Christ in Lexington, a city just outside of Boston. Their congregation had a paltry 30 members, and they reached out to Kip for help because he had developed a name for himself as someone who could help a struggling ministry. Though he had been previously kicked out of another Church of Christ, Kip agreed to join the church as their minister. He had only one condition. They all had to be completely committed. He didn't want to run into the same issues that plagued him in Charleston. Church elders could not get in his way. He needed central power because he knew that his interpretation of God's word was perfect. He spoke from a place of God and wanted his earthly word to be the end of any debate. On the evening of June 1, 1979, Kip met with 30 members of the Lexington Church in the house of one of its most influential couples. There, they established what they wanted the church to be. He felt close to this new, small congregation. He called it the Family of God. Each member would have to be re-baptized if they did not meet his criteria for being a disciple. He believed they couldn't be saved unless they understood what their baptism entailed, devoting time to God and the church. Kip wrote, After baptism, each disciple is taught to obey all the commands of Jesus as one grows and goes making disciples. If this is what God teaches in the Bible, then we are God's movement. It was in these early stages that Kip put himself in the seat of judgment. He knew the Word of God and his interpretation was true. When these members agreed to be totally committed, they gave Kip ultimate power, not only over themselves, but over every new convert who would come to the church. Discipleship soon took hold at the church in Boston. Kip was on the top of the pyramid, just as he had been in Charleston, and it was successful. The church was rapidly growing. As the church grew, so did Kip's ambition. He had plans for his church far beyond the United States. His idea was simple. He would send a group of disciples to metropolitan centers around the world. Once they were established in larger cities, the church would spread out to smaller communities. Kip called these central locations pillar churches, as they would hold up his kingdom. In 1981, a church opened in London, followed by Chicago in 1982 and New York in 1983. Also in 1983, the church in Boston changed its name to the Boston Church of Christ. In these first couple of years, as their notoriety gained momentum, Kip referred to what the church was doing as the Boston Movement. They wanted to create a distinction between themselves and the other churches of Christ that Kip felt weren't up to his strict standards. 
However, that same year, the downtown building the church used burned down. There was a decision to make. He could rebuild, which would cost a lot of money and time, or he could try something new. Kip said, we concluded that buildings had taken too much money from people and slowed the growth of the church. In this way, the elders and I decided to invest our funds in people instead of mortgages, interest, and stone. Instead of having a permanent building, the church in Boston began holding their Sunday services at the Boston Opera House. But even without a rent to pay, they enacted intense tithing practices. In most traditional Christian churches, it is suggested that members give 10% of their income to the church. But even that is often portrayed as entirely optional. However, when it came to the Boston Church of Christ, tithes were directly tied to a member's faith. Kip and church leaders constantly challenged members to give more. Ex-members described an environment where every dollar was tallied. One former member alleged that the church told her to sell her car, her only means of transportation, if she couldn't come up with her tithe. And if members failed to contribute, then their discipleship was severely questioned. Beyond that, they might eventually be asked to leave. And according to Kip's teachings, if they left the church, they were doomed to hell. Though these tithing practices caused a stir in the community, the church's recruitment practices on college campuses were even more controversial. In Charleston and Gainesville, Kip had learned that recruiting college students was a good way to help grow a congregation. With so many colleges and universities in the area, Boston was overflowing with impressionable young minds. According to the Boston Redevelopment Authority, over 150,000 students attend nearly 35 universities and colleges in the city, a perfect recruiting ground for Kip. Educators and campus officials were beginning to complain. They viewed Kip and the Boston movement at best as radical evangelists and at worst as a cult. During the mid-1980s, local colleges started to warn their students of the church's practices, such as love bombing. In her 1996 book, Cults in Our Midst, psychologists Margaret Singer and Yanya Lalich say love bombing is an effective tool for recruiting new members. She wrote, love bombing is a coordinated effort usually under the direction of leadership that involves long-term members flooding recruits and newer members with flattery, verbal seduction, affectionate but usually non-sexual touching, and lots of attention to their every remark. Students told their stories of members approaching them while they were waiting in line at the dining halls. Other students who decided to give their number to recruiters soon found their phone ringing daily. And while that might seem aggressive, recruiters were only doing this because they themselves were under significant pressure. The church reportedly taught that disciples who weren't recruiting new members weren't good disciples. In addition to expanding membership, they were also expected to go to church services twice a week, in addition to their Bible studies and calls with their elders. Members said they were spending between 15 to 30 hours a week on the church. And if a member's discipleship was put into question, they may not have a chance to get into heaven because, as Kip taught, disciple equals Christian equals saved. 
Despite the intensity of the church, some members had good experiences. They found meaning. There were stories of couples brought back from the brink of divorce, addicts getting clean, and families growing closer. However, there were just as many stories of the church causing harm. The church controlled many aspects of these members' lives. Elders reportedly decided who younger disciples could date, and on several occasions tried to convince them to drop out of school so they could spend more time helping the church. The extent of the control became so peculiar that, in one instance, a member of the church in London was told to get rid of her cat because you should be ready to go anywhere, do anything at a moment's notice, and having a cat did not fit in. Kip owed a great deal of his success to his mentor, Chuck Lucas, who in 1985 was still preaching back in Gainesville. However, that year, Lucas was abruptly fired from Crossroads for what other leaders called recurring sins. Years later, Rick Bauer, a former staff member at the Boston Church, claimed that Lucas was fired for having sex with male members of his church. For a leader of an evangelical church, this was unspeakable. These claims were never confirmed by Crossroads, but other former members have agreed with Bauer. No information has been given to suggest that the relationship between Kip and Lucas was anything other than that of a mentorship. But Lucas's influence still loomed large over the Churches of Christ. Many of the students that he discipled at Crossroads went on to be ministers all over the country. When Lucas was fired, an educational void was created. Kip had a thriving organization and was more than willing to help. That is, of course, if those Church of Christ leaders came to Boston for training. Kip called this training reconstruction. In order to rebuild any struggling church, it would have to be torn down, and Kip was the leader of the wrecking crew. The leaders of those churches that sought help came to Boston. While they were training, Kip sent other preachers who were already totally committed to his teachings to the congregations that had asked for help. This ensured that all of those new reconstructed churches would be lockstep with Kip. In 1986, 32-year-old Kip helped facilitate the first reconstruction. He went to Jamaica with five other church leaders to see if it would work. On a hot, humid Friday night, Kip stood up in front of the congregation in Kingston and drew a figurative line in front of the pulpit. Anyone that wanted to be recommitted in their faith had to step forward. Those who didn't would be left behind. The individuals that stepped forward were broken up into smaller groups and asked to confess their sins. They were now part of the one true church. Kip was exerting great power. Social psychologists John R.P. French and Bertram Raven found that they were five distinct versions of power. Kip displayed characteristics of expert power. French and Raven said, expert power is based on the perception that an individual has some special knowledge or expertness. Though, interestingly, they note the individual doesn't actually need to be an expert. Kip preached the idea of one unified church body as part of this reconstruction. While churches themselves would be spread out, they would all point to the same cause and leadership. Back to Kip. 
it would eliminate what Kip saw as distractions in the Churches of Christ. He felt that church elders spent too much time squabbling over semantics, and that didn't help the church's mission as a whole. The cracks between Kip and the Churches of Christ that initially formed in Charleston steadily became a chasm. By late 1986, the Churches of Christ formally separated themselves from Kip McKean and the Boston Movement because of his different teachings. But it didn't matter, because all of the churches that he'd reconstructed stayed with him. Kip believed the mainline church was jealous of his achievements. He said, I'm convinced that jealousy over our growth, which exposed their lack of growth, was a major motivation of this separation. With no one there to keep him in check and a congregation that was fully committed to him, Kip McKean's power was completely undisputed. Kip went from a young, hungry minister to a larger-than-life figure who was holding the keys to the kingdom for thousands of people in dozens of churches. Over the course of a decade, what began as a congregation of 30 in Boston had become a global phenomenon with nearly 50,000 members. The vast scope of the Boston movement was seen in late 1989, when nearly 12,000 of Kip's disciples from all over the world descended on the Boston Garden. It was a big moment for Kip. He saw the incredible reach of his church. Disciples from all over were gathered in one space, but his time in Boston was coming to an end. He needed to move west to ensure the church's continued growth. Kip decided to move to Los Angeles in 1990 to be with a small but passionate congregation. He saw this as the new home base for the movement. He believed it gave the church easier access to reaching Asia to start new ministries. By 1992, the movement officially changed its name to the International Churches of Christ. It was more in line with Kip's radical vision, convert everyone around the world in a single generation. Thanks again for tuning in to Cults. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on Kip McKean, amongst the many sources we used, we found the dozens of letters from former members and personal accounts of their time in the church at reveal.org, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Cults, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Cults on Spotify, just open the app and type Cults in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Cults was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Travis Clark. This episode of Cults was written by Robert Tyler Walker and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. 